I'm Charlie Taylor. Link Carter around hip hop with the on Twitter. You see pop statistics to highlight the bigger picture. Go ahead and direct to the fifth element, highlight fifth element hip hop, which is knowledge. Ben's a goner by the time he gets to London in about 10 ish days. <laughs> Why am I gonna though? <laughs> uh, we, we don't know. Not sure yet. Just, 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 uh, yeah. Just, just letting you know, bro. Well, it's not the worst way to go. Let's put it that way. <laughs> not the worst. Way. <laughs> just, 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 uh, yeah, just, yeah. Instant clap as soon as you step foot on British soil. <laughs> I beam. How's your week been? This week, so I'm just going to run through, I didn't listen to heaps this week, I did listen to Five Year Friends album, wow. As long as you listen to the porn stuff. Yeah, yeah, well, this wasn't, yeah, anyway, Five Year Friend, uh, it's just like, I, I, I'm, just, I'm tired is, is the way to describe listening to Five Year, because I'm just tired in general, I'm old, I'm tired, so I, I can't, it's too much high energy, there's no... Uh, no, nah, there's no there's no second gear with Five Year. It's just over and over again for the whole album. Like, can you stop chattering in my ear? Like, holy shit. So anyway, wasn't for me that particular album. But uh, Lil Sims dropped. Lil Sims dropped. Was it? Is it drop seven? Drop six? Drop seven? Drop seven? I fucking love this little project. I listened to it over and over and over again on Friday. I ran it back and back and back. Production is wild. Lil Sims on some of the craziest production. Like I have, I will fully admit, I am not the biggest Simbi fan. Po pre Simbi, I, I haven't listened to a lot of her stuff pre Simbi. Um, so I don't know. Is she on these kind of production normally? I I don't know. But this was just fucking amazing. I enjoyed it immensely. There's some some Afro beat in the middle there. Some it was it was great. I I fully fully recommend people checking that. It was really nice to hear her on some different production and just hear her just like. This is a proper EP. I don't know if her previous drops were like this. This is a proper EP. She's just trying a bunch of different sounds, so I appreciated that. Uh, Dizzy Rascal dropped. I haven't given it a proper listen yet. I only gave it like a a cursory glance, but it certainly sounds like it's fucking amazing. So it doesn't sound like late 2000s Dizzy. It sounds a little bit more like early 2000s Dizzy, which I'm very excited for because I do not like late 2000s Dizzy. Uh, Blue dropped project. Very, very good um that was it man that was all i got into this week i didn't uh i didn't listen very widely what about yourself oh yeah i've gone to a pretty solid mix um so yeah start off with Lil sims drop seven um can't believe it guys oh my gosh i'm a fan of Lil sims and yet didn't rate the project as i oh i've completely broken everyone's brain how can i possibly be a fan of somebody brain. and not particularly enjoy a project i can't believe it no i did i did enjoy it for the most part um objectively um i just um and to answer your question on the pre uh album eps um I much personally prefer them. Um, obviously, this is uh, 
kind of marking 10 years since she started uh, doing those in 2014. And um, they came to me and still as after I listened to a few of the tracks um, sometime last week, just randomly, um, they still they still hit for me personally. Um, they all have this kind of... Um, and she had this space theme going on um, in a lot of the work, a lot of her pre-album work, um, and kind of um, ditches it all um, after... Uh, pretty much after her first album to be honest um, but the themes are there and uh, this is kind of different in the same way as Drop 6 um, whereas I kind of passed that off as a um, as a uh, you know kind of like Covid project where you know it's just like bed- in a bedroom making beats and had that kind of vibe and I, I like that for the most part um, but yeah, um, it's, it is different and I think it's one of those EPs where, you know, it succeeds in that sense of, you know, there's, there's, there's several types of EPs and one of them is just try and shit out and this is a try and shit out EP, which I'm always down for. Um, and for somebody of Sims's caliber, I'm always down for as well. So yes, not my favorite EP of all time, um, but I respect the, I respect the, uh, the, the, the the goal uh, she's trying to achieve with that um anyway uh adana duru uh nappy hour 2 um loved nappy hour 1 from last year uh, one of my eps of the year um of 23 and um this is more of the same in some ways um there's a lot of just really she has this really um comical uh, nature to her if you if you follow her on ig you definitely get what i'm talking about um, but yeah, she has this comical nature to her, but, um, her, but objectively her vo- vocals are sick, her songwriting is good, and, um, yeah, she's just a really solid artist with a sense of humour, and I'm here for that at, at all times, and um, there's one track where, <laughs> uh, I think it's the first track actually, of saying, you know, if I was a boy, said she called if I was a boy, and, um, and, uh, she said, uh, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't eat, uh, eat you out, and, um, Adana Dur, if you're listening, just know, we are card carrier members of the Eatbox Society. So, you know, it's not all of us, okay? Don't worry about it. Anyway. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like I'm offering sounds we like I'm offering to eat. <laughs> sounds like I'm offering, but I'm just saying, state for the record. Wouldn't say but no, anyway. but you know. <laughs> <laughs> blue and Roy Royal, uh, outstanding name there. Uh, Royal Blue, get it. Um so yeah. Death taxes and blue dropping and um it's solid. I can't don't really know what to say about blue projects these days. They're just so they're just so freaking tight. Uh the pro the, the production I haven't heard Royal Blue production before, so that was a new one and uh really enjoyed it. Love the sampling on it. Um really good beats. Um so yeah, can't complain. Really solid DP. Terrace Martin, her thoughts, Death Taxes and Terrace Martin dropping. Um this is kind of an interesting one where it's uh, covers of uh, certain songs of note recently. Um, so Snooze and Kill Bill from Scissor, um, Coco Jones's ICU, um, and a couple more that I forget. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of just Terrace Martin jazz versions, covers of those songs. Um, so if you like saxophone instead of vocals, this is your EP. Um, go for that. Um, DJ Harrison, Shades of Yesterday. Um, love me some DJ Harrison, and uh, this one is no different. Uh, very eclectic, um, indescribable in terms of just uh, trying to p- 
put it in a box and there's just so many so many flavors he's playing with here and um yeah it's just a really fascinating dive um sample heavy but just sonically so different i can't yeah i generally take me ages to describe um dizzy school don't take it personal um a lot of just fucking bang it in the whip just full blast windows open that kind of music um i'm here for that um cocky dizzy is great dizzy and um you know he's he's it's kind of it's, it's funny you say pre um 2000 uh, pre well, well early 2000s dizzy that's what you said um i kind of think of it as um early 2010s dizzy when he was like starting his label and he had like baseline junkie which is a, a banger it's kind of like an album of baseline junkies but more refined and um more uh and with a few more features of course got like dwe on here i think jme's on here back row g's on here as well a couple times um there is one track that was very fascinating which was literally i can't describe it in any other way than a uh i want i want to see my kids track um which was very fascinating um uh yeah <laughs> that was just that was just an interesting one to put in the middle there um but yeah apart from that um yeah the rest of it is just straight up blasting the whip bangers and uh you know they're fast paced um a lot of lyrics just flying by and uh yeah man just uh cocky dizzy i'm here for it uh a1 and parental sublime shout out to a1 friend of 5e um need to get him back need to get him back i haven't talked to him in a while but um yeah a1 uh jazz 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 hop um connoisseur um very much his bag and parental coming through with uh well dj parental previously and then he said dj parental at the start of the project and then in an interlude saying parental not dj parental and i was just like okay you're creating yourself <laughs> anyway um but yeah it's uh it's great jazz hop this is actually some of uh i think some of uh a1's best lyrics so far um suffice to say that it's um a similar subject matter than he usually does and um, if you listen to something like solar power from a few years ago you really understand where he's coming from and um he does more of that um he really wears his heart on his sleeve lyrically and talks about the things that he's seeing um he really talks about he's very experience based and um there's one track where he, he's literally dedicating it to his um to his uh, wife uh, tiff the gift who is also featured on this project and um yeah it's a very heartfelt um album um in some ways uh, but it's got that real smooth jazz hop uh vibe nice samples and uh yeah it's just a really solid album to put on and lastly Brittany Howard uh what now um i just Brittany Howard's one of those artists i just randomly put on <laughs> i don't know why um she doesn't really she doesn't like my favorite artist of all time but i just really i don't know i really enjoyed that alabama shakes album sound and color um and i've kind of just followed her since um she had a really good um remix album a few years ago and uh there was like one um there was one with childish gambino on it that was really good i forget the name of it but yeah i've just always listened to her stuff and have been you know relatively into it um you know she really goes a lot of places with her work is probably why she takes years doing it um but yeah, I think this is a worthy um, body of work. Um, some 
rock, there's some jazz here, there's a really good um, just jazz track in here, um, there's just a absolutely sublime for me, um, and uh, yeah, it's just a, it's just a smorgasbord of sound, and uh, she has great vocals as well, and she's uh, you know, a great multi-instrumentalist as well, so um, a lot of talent just be bursting out all the time when it comes to Britney Howard, shout out to Britney Howard, um, speaking of bursting talent, we continue our uh, Public Enemy retrospective uh, for the uh, for well, for the next, well, for the past episode, if you didn't listen to obviously part one, um, covering the albums of note, shall we say, um, we now get into their uh, late ninety, well, they're pretty much their nineties output and their mid two thousands output, um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> continuing on, just uh, talking about albums that a lot of them are for the first time for me listening and um some interesting takeaways i would say uh from some of these albums um so yeah plenty to get through plenty of albums to get through on this one um as we will with uh, next week as well uh plenty of albums then so yeah with that said without wasting time let's make haste ben what have you got for us we definitely rejoin the public enemy story at a very crucial phase in their history so they entered the 1990s as an actual force they were the most vital and political mainstream hip-hop act they had a production arm that was creating actual classics and changing east coast production forever they had two groups that they were managing leaders in the new school young black teenagers chuck d was also working with ice cube and the group were involved in everything to do with music and around it. They were a hub of influence, commercial success, and innovation at the start of the early 90s. They were the pinnacle. They were at the absolute pinnacle. They were so ubiquitous, they were actually in talks with MCA Records to take three members of the newly broken up new edition and create an album for them. So Chuck D told Yusuf Jar for the book Fight the Power, he said, <clears throat> the three happened to be Ricky Bell, Michael Bivens and Ronnie DeVoe, later to become Bell Biv DeVoe. At MCA, Miram Hira Mix, sorry, uh, who was their manager, and Louis Silas, who were running the show, were like, yo, these kids were left out in the cold. Can you come up with something for them? This is the level that he was at, by the way. This is the level that Public Enemy, Bomb Squad, Chuck D, they were just being like, people were bringing new edition members to them to be like, can you create something out of this? They'd only dropped, what, three albums by this point. It's just crazy the amount of influence they had. So in a four-week period at the end of 1989, the Bomb Squad created three of the greatest projects in musical history, Fear of a Black Planet, Poison, America's Most Wanted. So despite all this, they lost the momentum that they had in their early 90s. And rather than becoming an institution into the decade like, say, Death Row or Native Tongues, their influence actually slipped away quite quickly. And by 95, they kind of exited the mainstream stage. So this is a very interesting episode because, as I said, the last episode, up, 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 and we continue up for a little bit, and then we go shoo, straight down. So it's going to be very interesting to see how we get there. So Hank places all the blame for all of that, uh, on their fourth studio album, Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Back, which is a stance shared by a couple of people who have written about the group. Angus Beatty told The Quietest back in 2011 that this was by far their riskiest and most bold album. It was the album the group had been building to. It was meant to be their definitive record. So, you know, if you go back in time, this they were, they were really building to this point. This was meant to be the culmination of their entire career up to this point. So there's a great section in that piece from The Quietest which links up with a huge part of Public Enemy's enduring legacy. So Angus Beatty wrote about their third album, Fear of a Black Planet. 
The Black Planet in the title wasn't just a nod to the genetic inevitabilities essayed in the title track, it was a record that sought to explain the nature of the black American experience to the rest of the world. So I think that's a very underrated aspect of Public Enemy's early success and how well they did internationally. Like, It Takes a Nation only charted 42 on the Billboard 200, but it went number 8 in the UK. Fear of a Black Planet did even better, number 30 in Australia, 15 in Canada, 30 in Germany, 17 in Netherlands, 15 in New Zealand, 24 in Sweden, 19 in Switzerland, number 4 in the UK. They actually almost always charted better in the UK than the US. But this, according to Beatty, led to some commentators claiming Public Enemy was rap for people who didn't listen to rap due to their alternative sounding production early in their career. Yeah, that sounds fucking stupid, doesn't it, inside? Like, imagine poor old Angus Beatty sitting at home rereading that and just being like, God damn it. Fuck that take up, didn't I? That one was wrong. But, I mean, they were working with Sonic Youth, Anthrax, Living Color. This actually led to PE being cited as influential by a very diverse group of artists. So, you've got Kurt Cobain, Orteca, Nine Inch Nails, Moby, Bjork, Tricky, The Prodigy, not the rapper, the electronic group, Ben Harper, Amon Tobin, Aphex Twin, Rage Against Machine, Porcupine Tree, My Bloody Valentine. These are all, I don't know if you guys at home know these names. They're not hip-hop names. They're, they're these, <laughs> Yeah, so, pre- so pretty much like every notable name in their field. <laughs> every notable name in the 90s. Who, like these are, yeah. by the way, all these artists are wildly fucking influential on their own. Like, you've got exactly bro, right. <laughs> Bjork, Aphex Twin, Moby, Kurt Cobain. Like, come on now, yeah. this is you, madness. You, you, can literally say, you can literally say they're, like, the pinnacle of whatever genre they're, they're yes. like, they frequented. Like, and some of them even created their own genres. So, like, right, yes. Exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. They're really fucking incredible. Yeah. So, shout, shout to Angus, by the way. Yeah, yeah Angus sure Beatty. Always trust a dude named Angus. Good call, oh, Angus. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fucking Angus. Angus. Bro. Angus. <laughs> So it's not, look, it's not something I've ever really heard Chuck D speak on, but it is interesting how their influence developed throughout the early part of their career. They were dropping music that was delivering one of the most vital messages to a worldwide audience we had ever seen in hip-hop. It was very important. So by 1988, they were already playing huge venues in the US alongside Run DMC, Derek B. Uh, 1990, they toured Canada for the first time without any co-leads. They played two headline shows in September of 1990, and then they flew to Europe for the end of the year. And they finished 1990 playing shows in Switzerland, Netherlands, Germany, um, which is crazy, man. In Netherlands, they brought ET- EPMD. In Germany, they brought Ice Cube along with them. That's global icon status, bro. Bringing Ice Cube to a show in Germany in 1990 is a power move. That is a power fucking move. And that's not the easiest position to be in. Chuck D explained the position the group was in during his interview with CBR in 2016. He said, I think Public Enemy has always had that Spider-Man type of resonance. You can take black literature and magazines. We were always pro-black, but we were never black cultural heroes because it was it was always like we had villain music and we were anti-heroes. I always felt like as much as we fought for certain things, we were also considered outlaws. Back then, I think the things we were fighting against in a lot of situations, it was thought to be too incendiary or risque, shaking the tree a little bit too much and going against the grain. It was almost like we were black punks. A lot of people talk about Public Enemy as being, you know, genuine hip-hop punks. So, yeah, for sure. The interviewer then told Chuck D that when they were protesting against police brutality recently, in 2016, they were still seeing Fight the Power, implying that PE were absolutely icons and still relevant to this day. And Chuck D responded, I always thought I was more welcome to the pterodone and bring the noise than I was Fight the Power. 
Fight the Power was the thing we all share with Spike Lee. It really was a meeting of the minds. If anything, Fight the Power was one of our most passive records, which you know I found that very interesting for him to say. So whilst PE ended the 1990s with none of the mainstream success they entered that decade with, I think Chuck D's words right there are the most potent example in explaining why that does not matter at all. You know, they hit the peak of mainstream music, not just in Europe, but all across Europe. Uh, sorry, not just in America. <laughs> not just in America, but all across Europe. They went number four in the UK, bro. That's massive. So, you know, they're still relevant to this day, but now we're going to kind of talk about what happened and how they fell from that 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 pinnacle that they were at. And we're going to start with Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Back. Black. Black. Starts, strikes black actually right get it right um anyway uh yeah man i i was trying to think of the superlative to give this album because i really do enjoy it um i think by the time i get to arizona is my favorite public enemy track just any track <laughs> i think it's just the best track they've done um i i love the uh i love the production on there um has this kind of like beat switch in the middle and Chuddy's is going and going and going and the beat comes back in and I'm just like oh my gosh um that was on I think a Tony Hawk tr- uh, soundtrack as was bring the noise with a z um obviously yeah. with anthrax on there Definitely. that's a, that's obviously a classic if you know you know um but yeah the entire album man I really enjoy the I really enjoy the entire album I t- it's not um, there's not, there's not really much I don't rate about it. I feel I think personally I'd put this uh, a little bit above um, Black Planet. Um, personally, just as a back to front listen. Um, but yeah, I I can ima- I can see what is meant when you know they say I think I think you met, one of the Shockleys said it. Um, that it's supposed to be this was supposed to be their magnum opus. And I can I can imagine where they're coming from on there. Like the messaging through some of these tracks is fascinating. Obviously, by the time I get to Arizona, it was very controversial um, from the uh, basically plotting <laughs> uh, plotting to uh, quote unquote kill the uh, Arizona governor at the time um, for what was it shutting down MLK Day or something like that? Yeah, so, it was yeah intense. It was just, it was in in hindsight, deal. in hindsight, it's not the biggest thing ever. Um, considering you know the amount of things that uh, the amount of liberties that are being threatened uh, by the U.S. government these days, um, but yeah, you know it's, it was clearly something that was on their mind, and they made a fucking hell of a song to do it. Um, One million bottle bags is very fascinating yeah. in terms of just uh, you know drinking and uh, how it kills uh, or, or how it beats down uh, the African American community. Uh, malt liquor specifically. Um, Sister Soldiers featured on here as well. Shout out to Sister Soldier. Shout I think out we're Sister doing. Soldier. I think we're covering. I think we're covering her next month. She uh, was part. Uh, she was part of the group for at one point. They brought her on in, yes. in place of Pro- Professor Griff. Yes, yes. In place of uh, Professor Griff as the uh, what was it <laughs> Minister of Information? Information or yeah. They gave her a different yeah. title, but she yeah, she was part. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that was cool. But, yeah, man, um, Rebirth, Night Train, Can't Trust It, great stretch right there. Um, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I just love this album. <laughs> I, just, I just really like this album. It's really, it's a really good uh, freaking album. Shut Them Down, it's a banger. Um, 
and like I said, bring the noise to finish it off with Anthrax is just a yeah sick fucking thrash metal banger. Like I can't, you know, can't when when they go when they go down that route, um, you know, it's, not, it's obviously believe it or not, not my favorite genre of all time, but um, you know, it's it's interesting how they do it, and uh, I do find that fascinating that he's uh, that. Chuck finds find the power uh, fight the power tame. Um, <laughs> I find I find that interesting um, compared to. I guess it is kind of, but like, it's. I mean, it's a it's I mean, a hit I've, single. I've, like, I would assume I would assume that's partly because of the fact that it's um that it was you know part of obviously the soundtrack to yeah. um um fucking hell what's the what's the name of the film Spike Lee film um oh bloody hell what is it. Talk while I find it, man. My memory's Jesus terrible. Christ. I can't remember. Do the right thing. That's it. Do the right thing. Do the, Do the right, right thing. thing. There you go. That's the one. That's the one. But yeah, um, I'm assuming that's maybe partly why. Maybe um, just having it in conjunction with the film uh, is why he saw it like that. I don't. I don't know how Chuck D thinks in that sense. I would love to follow up that question to be honest. But yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I love this album. Um, yeah, Arizona is probably my favorite Public Enemy track ever. Um, I can listen to that whenever. It's just a, it's just it's such a such great energy to me. But uh, yeah, man, really good album. I can imagine the um, wanting to it to be the magnum opus, and uh, you know, compared to other albums uh, that's coming up, I I find I find it weird that this you know gets like seven from Enemy or three stars from the Chicago Tribune or four four mics on the source doesn't make sense to me but anyway yeah I mean you remember back then like I feel like I want, I'd be so curious to see what the prevailing mood around public enemy was back in the, the early 90s late 80s like I really do I'm curious as to how people view this album because it was meant to be their magnum opus Hank told the quietest that every single track they've been working on for this album um, the album they worked their whole careers to make was actually stolen prior to the album dropping. So they lost every single disc of material that they had. Uh, and so in response, they tried to recreate the album with significant time pressure. Hank said, um, we had, I don't want to say a robbery, but what happened was as we were coming out of the studio, we had all our discs of every song we've been working on for the past four or five years with us, and it got lifted out of the studio. So we were rushed not just to put it together, but to create it because once you lose all your data, it's very difficult to get that data back. I mean, you may get some of it back, but you'll never get the complete set. You won't even know what the complete set is because there's data in there you didn't really know you had. So he says, this was a very, very dark time. It kind of stunted our growth. We never really recovered after that. We were on a roll. I was on a roll. And to lose that material set me back so hard. So obviously the first difference is the production personnel. The album is produced primarily by the Imperial Grand Min Ministers of Funk who are Stuart Roberts, Serwin Depper, and Gary G. Wiz, and the JBL. Their production credits mean almost exclusively PE. So I you know, went on Discogs and had a look around. They haven't done a lot of other work. And this ruined the album for a lot of people, and I can understand why in some aspects they did decide to forego that wall of sound production that created their first three albums into these cinematic experiences. And for the first time since a few stretches on their debut, it actually sounded like they were trying to be a little bit more contemporary and mainstream again. It sounded like some of these sounds were, you know, <clears throat> of the times, which is not something that I would say of Public Enemy, except for very rare occasions. So we expect a group as diverse and influential as PE to switch their sound up. It would be weird if they just kept dropping the same album. 
Um, but that's not something people expected of the group. So there were a host of theories as to why the album sounded the way it did outside of Hank's admission that much of the work they were prepping was stolen. The time pressure he mentioned goes some way to explaining why the bomb squad weren't as present. They were in incredibly high demand. And once you lock in to produce a project for someone, it doesn't matter if all your demos were stolen and you have to start from scratch with Public Enemy. You have to finish the albums you've been commissioned to do, unfortunately. So I assume that's why the bomb squad weren't as present. In an 18-month period, they produced Belle Biv DeVoe, PE's third album, Ice Cube's debut, Young Black Teenager's debut, a track for the Manic Street Preachers, tracks off later the New School album, um, Berserk, Berserk, Berserk by Sons of Berserk, tracks for Salt and Pepper, Big Daddy Kane, Aaron Hall. It was very hectic. They were doing a lot of work. I'm harping on about this because Hank's words about losing momentum, they came in 2008, by the way. They were not in a, an, like, you know, that, that quote I read earlier. I think that does explain what happened to P's commercial viability. So the album did very well. It went number four on the Billboard 200. It's their first and only top five album on the chart. Charted worldwide, platinum in the US. Can't trust it went number 50 on the Hot 100, their first ever entry on that chart. Chuck D and Flavor Flav hold the album together alongside Sister Soldier, who, as Charlie said, comes on here. Chuck D's devastating as always. I think Arizona is the best track to me. That piece in The Quietest made note of his destruction of willful ignorance on this album. It's almost as if his frustration at the cognitive dissonance in America at the time finally just bubbled over and he decided to spend the entire album just fucking destroying it. By the time we get to Arizona, is almost the most abstract track on the album, like lyrically, because it's quite, you know, it's very niche. It's about a very specific thing, but the themes are so vivid and clear. How to Kill a Radio Consultant, far more overt lyrically, I think it's a really simple and succinct description of how Public Enemy want to run their career. They never wanted to be forced into making artistic decisions based on capitalism. Chuck D says it in every fucking interview. Talks about it all the time. He told the Sydney Morning Herald in 2010, which is an Australian newspaper, the web has been a saving grace for me for the last 12, 13 years, and it's allowed us to have a very healthy year after we left the corporation, Def Jam, and Universal. Every Everybody's trying to figure out how do we do it, We've pretty much done it with our own rules. And that's what he says throughout his whole career. And I think that was present on this album. You know, they're a group that I think would have benefited greatly coming up in the internet age. Despite all the recording industry red tape they faced, they still managed to drop music that stayed true to their values, which is pretty amazing. I felt like the only misstep on this album is Letter to the New York Post, which is a garbage song with garbage lyrics. Um, in the first verse, Flav accuses the New York Post of mischaracterizing his domestic assault charge against the mother of his children. Flav pleaded guilty to assaulting his girlfriend, Karen Ross, in 91. He lost custody of his children and spent 30 days in prison for it. Um, and you know what? This album was kind of the beginning of the end for Flav. We'll discuss that in a second. But his casual dismissal of domestic abuse and the homophobia in that song really a precursor for a 1990s that saw him lose a lot like he really fell quite a long way by the end of the decade he was living in a broken down home uh scalping baseball tickets for extra cash so you know this was the height as i say it, it really dips after this um and i did think that this was flav's best album too aside from that track i thought he was amazing so yeah man it's a solid record um and then we get music and our message like now we get into the interesting titles. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of wordplay in these album titles. Yeah, um, I was I remember just seeing this and being a bit confused of what 
what it was at the foot like when I was a kid and I was just like, what the fuck? Muse sick an hour mess age. I was scanning on there. Um but yeah, obviously music and our message. Um it's a, it's a it's an interesting album considering that they um kind of quote unquote took a break in between here. Um by took a break I mean didn't drop the year before, the year after. Um well, I mean, 87, 88, and then 1991, and then 94. So, you know, take that how you will. But yeah, kind of a break um, three years since uh, Podcast 91. And um, I forgot where I heard Give It Up, but I fucking love that song. <laughs> I, I, I think it was just one of those, one of those, uh, I think it was one of those um, projects, uh, one of those songs, sorry, where um, I just... Uh, Maybe hear it in a video game. I'm assuming it's a video game. I'm assuming most of these, when I've heard of them, it's just from video game because it just makes sense to me. Um, that where else would I hear it? But um, yeah, just a uh, big basketball vibes on that one. Just uh, yeah, it probably it probably should have been on the He Got Game soundtrack. Now that now that we're saying it, really. But uh, anyway, uh, we'll get to that in a bit. But yeah, I this is I think an album that is fascinating within the context of when it drops. 94. Summer 94. I feel like at this point, you know, um, the likes of, well, Ice Cube, right? And and others, right? Um, go down this different route um, musically. And the whole of hip-hop goes down a different road musically. Whereas Public Enemy are just kind of not alone in this space obviously there are plenty of um there are plenty of bias in the in the uh well how we should say uh, that you know try to provide a message um in their work um we've talked about groups like brand nubian right for example that you know go about it in a different way obviously um and public enemy do it in kind of a um i guess a neo black pantherish kind of way um to put it very lightly, <laughs> and to put it very bluntly, but yeah, um, I'm into this album as a whole, apart from, apart from Give It Up, I don't really have, um, songs that scream out to me, apart from maybe Race Against Time, I don't mind that one, um, but yeah, you know, I kind of, it kind of washed over me personally in terms of, like, oh, this track's hard, you know what I mean, but as an overall album, it's kind of interesting, um, uh, in some ways, I probably agree with a major- I mean I've never seen a I've never seen such a uh, mixed reviewership by the way like a lot of these are just it's just so all over the place I'm seeing like four stars from places but I'm also seeing 2.5 from the source you got so to, you got I, I'm not really you got to remember with these reviews like reviewers were trying to make a statement about public enemy oh, back yeah, in the day course. like they give it a low they score they actually had they actually had sway <laughs> when yeah, it comes and, to this and shit. they were triggered you so know they knew their D, power chuck d was trying to trigger them like so if they give it a bad review yeah. i i'm just like yeah sure okay cool like yeah yeah and you know with that said they've dropped in my mind at least three classics in the part in sit uh, already right so whatever they do from this hit from this here forward doesn't really matter um they obviously go on to make profits of rage as well and if you're into that you're into that um and obviously all the other stuff that you were mentioning but i just uh while while this album doesn't scream at me in the same way as the others um previously 
I I value it in I value it in some way. I feel like um, Chuck D is very energized on this album, and uh, I'm here for that. Um, you know, the Flav context is always interesting, um, especially thinking about him now, where he seems like he's in a better place, and uh, it's kind of crazy uh, <laughs> that he, you know, has gone through everything he's gone through. Has he done a memoir yet? Um, because. I can imagine that being an interesting read. I think read. he has, actually. I think <laughs> he may he? have read, okay, read the book. I'll just double-check yeah. that, because that would be I would be read. surprised if I would be surprised if he did sometime in the 2000s or something. But um, anyway, uh, it would be interesting just to get, especially now, to get his uh, look on everything, outlook on, on the world. But anyway, um, yeah, man, it's a solid album. I I don't think it, it's probably like, you know, three-ish stars in the in the average, I think, that everybody else is giving it. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's a classic either. I love "Give It Up" as a track, and um, that's a that's an absolute tune. Um, but yeah, man, it's 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 a, it's a solid return. Um, but I can imagine, I can imagine the context of it dropping three years after um, after Apocalypse '91. It it might have come across as a damn squib to some. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> the album titles. I still think the album titles might even be part of them just trying to piss people off too and just being like, you guys got, you know, we're going to make it as, as un-mainstream as possible. There's a piece in the Chicago... The thing, that, the thing that annoys me is the little subtitles at the bottom of each album. I have no idea what the fuck, like, the message is there. Oh, yeah. They're really... Like, so, <laughs> they're just so confused. I just don't get it. I, just, I, I can't decipher any of them. Chuck D's. Check these are creative. There's no doubt about that. He's definitely creative. So, yeah, it's such an artsy thing to do, bro. So there's a piece in the Chicago Sun-Times in 94 that posed the question, could Public Enemy re- remain relevant in a world run by G-Funk? Now, considering how few hip-hop acts there were at the pointy end of the Billboard 200, it's a very weird question in hindsight to ask because Public Enemy, they only really ascended in the interim. So in 92, they went on tour with U2 for two years. They headlined UK's Reading Festival. Flav's headline-grabbing behavior culminated in a trip to rehab in 93 at the Betty Ford Clinic for addiction to crack cocaine. He was apparently spending $2,600 a day on drugs, which is Woo. a significant amount of uh, of drugs to be taking. He told DJ Ek in the mix in 2023 he was hiding his drug use from everyone and performing and writing whilst higher. But the amount of money he was spending and the toll his addiction was taking led him to confess. Uh, and his family stayed in intervention and he went to rehab. So, you know, he was ascending as well, like in terms of uh, his fame was just like, you know, it was tabloid worthy. So despite being on tour with U2, this period signified a significant slowdown in the public enemy train. The Bomb Squad took time off as well. Uh, there's an absence of credits during this time as producers. There's an interesting piece in The Guardian from 2015. I'm going to read a section of it because I think it really exemplifies the fracturing of Public Enemy. Uh, Whilst they were always a group dedicated to the collective and giving everyone the credit they deserve, the added pressures of fame and fortune tore at any exposed threads. So The Guardian piece says, Public Enemy's biggest crisis blew up when an overworked Chuck assigned some interviews to Griff, who in 1989 told Washington Times, etc., etc., we spoke about it. you know, last week. Um, So it it continues. He doesn't publicly criticize Griff for giving uh, paranoid lectures about the Illuminati, just like he didn't knock Flav for becoming a clownish reality TV star. Sometimes he seems like a long-suffering sitcom dad. He says touring is like being trapped in an ice cream truck. So you can hear, like, you can already see in that piece from 2015 how they're 
kind of like talking about public enemy fracturing. I mean, they're saying that public, like Chuck D is this, you know, up, kind of father-like figure above everyone else. And it's like the kids are running around and just fucking everything up. And that was the way it was pitched. And, you know, it's very interesting to see that and to, to get that perspective. But the hiatus between, sorry, the hiatus between the albums, definitely a break that the group needed. So Flav was dealing with his demons. Chuck D seemed to be becoming frustrated with having to hold the group together. The incessant touring was obviously difficult out on the road with you too. He still believed in the power of the group in the same Guardian piece. He actually criticized modern hip hop for having too many solo rappers and not enough groups. So he still believed in the collective, but the edges began to fray. And so we kind of got this album at a time of peak instability in the group, potentially the most unstable it's ever been. Um, I feel like this tiredness was kind of felt across the whole project and not just tiredness with recording and touring and being famous, but the tiredness that the mainstream of hip hop had gone in a new direction. This kind of led to, for the first time, I think, in their history, a little bit of a sloppy lyrical performance from Chuck D. I feel like he lazily lashed out at gangster rap and G-Funk without getting credit to the nuance of the subgenre, and this propelled criticism that the group was out of touch and a bit of a step behind. That's why the reviews were a little bit poor at the time. And in hindsight, it's very easy to criticize, right? It's just, it's easy to criticize Jay-Z's death of auto-tune by simply saying, why would you want to kill off a valuable and exciting new subgenre of mainstream rap? You can say that now, but in 2009, when Jay-Z dropped the song, everyone was like, ugh, more auto-tune. Let's get rid of this motherfucker. Like, everyone uses it now. I'm not saying Chuck D sought to end gangster rap, but his criticisms did fall a little bit flat. The press was merciless, especially about their ages, because Chuck D was 34, Flav was 35, Source gave it two and a half out of five. Rolling Stone said it was virtually unlistenable. Um, there was this weird piece in the New York Times by Neil Strauss from 94 where he actually gets Chuck D's thoughts on the bad press. He says, Chuck D says, I'll tell you a little secret. The advanced tapes that I issued to critics, I intentionally took bass out of the tapes. Um, both Toure, who reviewed the, the record for Rolling Stone, and James Bernard for The Source said they didn't notice a problem with the bass on the tapes uh, they reviewed. Toure, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you know Toure? <sighs> no, I listen to his pod now and again, and he just likes to talk. Oh, like, well, there you go. Just loves to throw it, just loves to be black and white with the opinions. It's like goated or shit. It's just, ugh. Uh, yeah, and he just, he just likes to talk. Anyway, well, there you go. carry on. Borderline unlistenable, yeah, yeah, of course he'd say that. Yeah, yeah he did say. <laughs> so Chuck D, Chuck D takes hip-hop's critics seriously enough to include a song about them on the album. If you find a critic dead, remember what I said. He raps on I Stand Accused. Who killed a critic, get, who killed a critic guess the crew did it. Uh, Chuck D also said he doesn't believe in the review process. But this is the struggle of commenting publicly on trends and actually having an opinion. If you get your read wrong, which is what happened here, you can really tank your credibility and popularity. You know, Public Enemy got their read really wrong, Gangster Rap. Master Ace did the same thing in 93 on Slaughterhouse. It's not like Public Enemy are alone in this. Master Ace put out a whole album, anti-Gangster Rap album, anti-G-Funk album. Didn't really do well. So, look, I like the album. It's okay. Um, it's certainly not my favorite of theirs. I, f I do feel like they just got lost here. I felt like this was not a righteous cause necessarily. Felt like they were heading down the wrong path on this one. But, you know, they they ride themselves and we get He Got Game, which is an interesting little project. Uh, considered their sixth studio album. It is considered a studio album. So Yeah, and, um, you know, 
it's um, it's always interesting having you know a group of this nature where you know they it, it's a, it's a thing where uh, if you have somebody who's willing to talk about shit in the same way Public Enemy do and in such vigor as they do, you kind of just um, have people you know trying so hard to be um, to to be even even be critical um with the same ferocity you know what i'm saying in the same way you uh in, in the same way someone uh, getting that you know very, like a no a notable person uh, who's talking about you know injustice or whatever and then you know they just get a ton of comments of people you know um actuallying and uh and shit like that it's just like <laughs> You know, they talk and they give takes, but there's a lot of people that give takes, and you know, you, you guys don't, um, you guys don't call them out because that's not their bag. You know, what I mean, that's not what they, that's not what they, uh, they're not built on. I have a message to give, right? And I feel like when people, uh, you know, get someone like Chuck, and yeah, you know, he's he's had some he's had some bad takes over the over the decades. Um, I find him over over overall you know a good faith person but yeah there's some takes he said over the years i'm just like mm, yeah no i think so Chuck. disagree hardly disagree but um yeah but you know some some the, the critics getting at them because they're getting at the critics you know what i mean it's 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 hilarious it's like a it's like a constant feedback loop. Yeah, where it's like, funny. Oh, you, you're going to talk about us? Or we're going to talk about you? <laughs> we're going to talk about you. It's just like, oh, you talked about yeah, me again. I'm going to talk about you. It's like, I have to I'm going to talk about work. you more. <laughs> I'm going to do it harder next time. It's just like, all right, bro. It's like, like the Eminem thing. fucking horse, bro. <laughs> like, just calm down. It's, yeah. uh, it's just, it's, <laughs> people get so fucking bitty about that. It's just embarrassing sometimes. Anyway, just want to shout that out. Um, he got game. Yeah, very interesting album in the context of their discography. Um, I obviously this is in reference to the soundtrack of uh, of the same of the film of the same name, also directed by Spike Lee, in the same vein as obviously Fire the Power being involved in the uh, Do the Right Thing soundtrack. Obviously, in this case, it's Public Enemy doing a whole album, um, and. You know, uh, with, you know, Bomb Squad coming back for this, and, you know, there's uh, Master Killers on here, KRS-One's on here, and that's all cool, right? They're great on it. Um, that was sick. That's some, <laughs> that's, Master you know, Killer that's some, was sick. Yeah, 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 it's a great it's a great fucking start to the album, really good. Um, you know, I think the first three tracks, actually, are just really top tier. Obviously, He Got Game is a classic track. Resurrection with Master Killer, banger. KRS One on Unstoppable is really good. So that just um, really, really nails home just uh, the essence of who KRS One is, and obviously mixing that with Chuck D is just a perfect mix. Uh, and then you get something like Shake Your Booty, which uh, you know, in context of the film, makes sense. In context of the album, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. No, thank you. Um, but yeah, you know, is you got a dog? Is your murder man or is your god a dog? It's yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of catchy. I like it, right? House of the Rising Sun, I like Revelation at th- uh, Revelation thirty three and the Third Revolutions. I like um, Game Fate, and then you know after that it kind of just yeah, gets into the you know these are and this is the thing when it comes to film soundtracks, I kind you kind of have to grade it on a curve because 
is in context of what the album is. So, you know, this goes on in in pretty much how the album goes, right? What you need is Jesus, and that's obviously referencing Jesus Shuttlesworth, which is a character in the film. Um, Super Agent, right? Another reference there. Um, Politics of the Sneaker Pimps is obviously talking about um, sneaker stuff and agency stuff and, you know, being a being a professional in basketball, in American basketball especially. You know, sponsorships is a very big thing. Um, there's a good film called High Flying Birds, I think it's called, um, that really nails down that kind of world and how cutthroat it is. Um, but yeah, it, as, a, as a soundtrack album, it's probably one of the better ones. Um, but in context of their discography, it's, you know, in the same vein as music and our message in terms of just like, you know, there's a couple of tracks in here that are notable, um, but then there's stuff like Shaky Booty, and I'm just like, eh, okay, I'm good on that one, so, uh, yeah, but, you know, it's a, it's a, like, again, who I don't really know who listens to soundtrack albums regularly, um, if you find a track that you like on there, then happy days um but yeah i've always i've always been kind of lukewarm on the concept of soundtrack albums to be honest but that's just me yeah i mean i've always been a little bit because it's just like the songs are in theme and it's like hey guys at least it weren't judas and the black messiah the worst soundtrack i've ever heard at least it weren't that okay is that bad? Because even in the context of even in the context of the film and the context of who they were covering was the worst album i've ever heard objectively <laughs> just yeah, that was worst just album you've pure ever miss pure it's up there it's up there it's a pure miss pure miss pure miss like if it if it weren't about if it weren't about fred hampton it would have been a decent album but it's in reference to fred hampton and i'm not taking any capitalism in a film about fred hampton and the soundtrack oh, supposed to cover Ho- it. i'm sorry wasn't hove on that and then wasn't there like a weird verse i'm sure he was i've tried i try not to remember these out these <laughs> i try to remember shit i don't like but um yeah it's he probably was let's be real he probably was and i will hate it as soon as you reference it trust me on that yeah i'm not the biggest uh, soundtrack fan but this is an interesting project so it is considered their sixth studio album it's a soundtrack to spike lee's film uh, it's I enjoy it to be honest. They reunited with Bomb Squad for it. Professor Good Griff you. was involved. Chuck D uses basketball as an extended metaphor throughout the album. Plenty of social commentary yeah. still. A lot of political messages. Uh, Twenty six on the Billboard two hundred, which at the time was seen like a failure. But considering their comment, their stance on commercial success of major labels, I don't think it's a failure. I mean, it's worth noting here that no one except LL Cool J and Dr. Dre from the 1980s was still selling well in the late 90s. Like, even Salt and Pepper's final album, Brand New in 97, only went 37 on the Billboard 200. Rakim's debut solo album went number four in 97, and then his sophomore went 72 in 99. So it was the end of the 1980s era by the time He Got Game came out. And, uh, you know, it's it's fine. I, I enjoyed it. And then we get There's a Poison going on. Yes, uh, which again, again to say on those um, subtitles in within the album artwork, the millennium for many is is the wall. It's a thinker. Sure. It's a thinker that one. That's a head scratcher. <laughs> head scratcher, <laughs> indeed. Um, I did. Did you um? How how long were you on Crash to realize that that was the point? Um. Yeah. How long did it take you to start to start uh, skipping a little bit to go like, what the fuck's going on? 
how long is it? It's long, isn't it? It's like three, it's like nearly four minutes. I think I went about 30 seconds in, and I was just like, is this the song? <laughs> so I just like skipped like 30 seconds each. I was like, oh, there we go. There's there's the song. There's, what what the fuck was all that then? That went off for like at least half, half, like 90 seconds. Yeah, it was a bit weird. Yeah, a little bit weird. I hate I hate when that happens sometimes. It's like, oh, just stop doing that. It's annoying. Um, but anyway, yes, past that minor randomness. Um, I don't mind the album, actually. I don't mind it. I think, um, you know, judging my reviews, can people consider it a return to form? Um, apart from Rolling Stone. I wonder if Torre wrote that one. Torre's still um, angry. You got, got an axe to grind. It, he, he it, honestly, he is that kind of guy. Honestly, I, I believe I can believe him to be that. Like, if you hear some of his music opinions, I don't hate. By the way, I don't hate Torre. It sounds like this is like the first time I've probably ever talked about him. But I've just kind of had these thoughts about him for the past few years. And yeah, so apologies. It sounds like I'm hating him, Torre. I think he's a cool dude, but he just talks a fuckload. And for someone that talks like me. This guy talks, uh, and yes, it's just crazy. He he has an opinion on pretty much anything. Anyway, oh no, it wasn't. It was Greg Cott, um, who who wrote the uh, um, review for that one. It's probably so, a Toure yeah, alias. To... Probably a probably his burner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, I mean, Greg Cott actually has a Wikipedia page, so shout out to Greg Cott. Um, not the the rare music. It's uh, not as Ethan, rare not music Ethan P. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Shout out to Ethan P. He's out there somewhere. We'll never find him. We'll never find him. We don't know what P stands for. What's the P stand for? Where are you, Ethan P? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, more ADL um, uh, talk on this one um, in terms of Swindler's Lust, which is obviously a a hat tip to uh, uh, the Schindler's List, which is obviously a film very deeply rooted in the Holocaust. Yeah. don't really have much thought about on that one. Um, they consider it offensive, outrageous, and quote suggestive of old age-old anti-Semitic the uh, themes and rhetoric. Um, I haven't read the lyrics towards it, um, so I can't. So I don't really remember uh, how bad it was lyrically. If it's just the name, then eh, bit of a reach, but you know. That's not for me to say, um, but yeah, I don't mind this album. I think it's a real return to form. To be yeah, to be fair, um, do you want to go our way? I enjoyed LSD. Uh, didn't mind here. I go. That's kind of cool. Uh, Crayola was interesting. Uh, first a sheep, next a shepherd. I liked. Yeah, that was cool. Um, Kavorkian, very interesting track. Really like that one. Um, in terms of obviously referencing Jack Kavorkian, who people reference as Doctor Death. I have, by the way, tangent again. Sorry, I just keep going on these tangents. I mean, it's public enemy. They keep mentioning shit. Just uh, that fascinates me, right? But um, there is not a person in the world that has been just demonized in the most unfair way than Jack Kavorkian. This dude, I'm sorry, guys. If I can, if I, if if I can decide, um, if uh, if dogs, right, if animals, right, can receive, you know, death to get away from pain, euthanasia, right. If if we can do that to animals, I think we can do it for ourselves. Okay. Oh, we're talking about so euthanasia. To have this guy. This is just silly, bro. Anyone, Public anyone enemy, out bro, there who's is, criticizing. Shut the fuck up. Like, this holy is it. This shit. Is it. This is Public Enemy, man. This is how great Public Enemy are. They get me talking about fucking euthanasia on a hip-hop podcast. Good. No other group. No other group. I'll tell you. No if you want to end your life, you can end your life. It's okay. Exactly. Let it's them just, do their it's thing, not, bro. It's not, it's not deep. I don't, 
It's not deep it's not at deep. all. If you, if really somebody says deep. on camera, and if guys, if you haven't seen, um, there's one particular documentary about Jack of Orkin, which is very fascinating. I forgot what it's called. It's probably called Doctor Death. Who knows, right? It's probably easy to find. But if you, if you give that documentary a spin. Um, he it's very clearly it's very him it's basically him just outlining what he's doing right. It's just like I get people on camera. They say of oh, sound body and mind, name. I want to die, and then they do it on camera. And while that might sound a bit weird to have you know death on camera, snuff film. Sure, that's a bit of a grey area. I'm not trying to watch that, obviously. But the concept and just the act of doing so, I feel, is the most easiest thing to support in life if someone wants to die hook them up <laughs> it's fine if they want to die they want to die let them have their free will i don't find i find that such a weird all of this shit that people talk about free will free speech yeah. and freedom, freedom 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 wild, bro. and then someone goes i want to die and this like, guy no, goes right, cool bet let's do it i got you and then they demonise that guy. It doesn't make sense. So shout to Jack Kowalkian. Shout man. out Jack Kowalkian. I don't. I think he's dead. He's, I, I he think passed he's dead, in but, 2011. But shout him out. Yeah. Yeah. Big ups to Jack Kowalkian, man, because that dude was just demonised to you, hell and back. He went to jail. Pun intended. He went to jail. And for I feel murder, like bro. he was dealt. He was dealt the worst hand. Um, but anyway, it's a good track, by the way. <laughs> but yeah, just getting on, back on track. But yeah, man, I think it's a good album. Real Return to Form. Um, uh, you know, even though it didn't have uh, any Bomb Squad, I think producers just Flavor Flav and Tom E. Hawk, um, as far as I know. So yeah, it's, um, production, I think it's solid. It's, I can't complain. Um, but yeah, so I, th- I think it's a real return to form, uh, com- especially compared to music. And obviously, he got games kind of a little bit of an ab- aberration. But you know, yeah, it's return to form. I low key thought Tom E. Hawk was Tony Hawk for a second. I'm like, wait, what? Don't they got Tony <laughs> Hawk? This is like how I discovered <laughs> Public Enemy, man. Tony Hawk pro skater, fucking Tony Hawk, yeah. Classic. Tony Hawk produced. So fun fact. So the group kind of fractured in the mid nineties. Terminator X moved out of the city. Flav fell further into substance abuse. They had a very public spit with Def Jam. They decided to release this album independently via MP3, which sounds outdated right now. But in 1999, that was very revolutionary. So let me set the scene a little bit for you. The mainstream landscape had passed Public Enemy by in the 1990s. By the end, they were on tour with U2, tearing down festival stages at the start. But the next generation was creating their own space. When Illmatic changed New York hip hop forever, Public Enemy still sounded like 1988. Sorry. And that's cool. I love their sound, but they were not particularly interested in hopping on trends. So they created their own trends. So if I can editorialize for a second, the main question I wanted to answer in this episode is what happened? They were primed for one of the biggest decades in hip hop, but it slipped away. It could never have been any other way. We've spoken plenty of times about the commercialization of hip hop in the early 90s. Major labels came in, they got rappers to sign their souls away. Def Jam became part of that (laughs) machine. And public, well, they did. And Public Enemy were never going to be a group who did anything a label told them in order to remain relevant. So they ascended to the peak of mainstream hip-hop at a time when that peak was a top five album and a single that charted. In 1999, things were a lot different. Okay, Snoop sold 800k first week with Doggy Style. And from that moment on, the game had changed completely. So the pinnacle of mainstream in hip-hop had changed completely. So rather than try and play a game whose rules they refused to adhere to, Public Enemy broke off. They had conflict with Def Jam because they were they wanted to release a couple of songs for free as MP3 downloads, and they did. And that began a conflict that culminated in the track Swindler's Lust, which was released for free. 
And, you know, that was a huge part of the content. That's the content of that song. If they hadn't have named it Swindler's Lust, I don't think there would have been controversy around the song because, you know, it's it's about them just getting swindled. Like, it's literally about them being swindled. But as soon as they attach, <sighs> you know, then it becomes, oh, no, 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 no. So Oh, the penchant for wordplay. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so... Anyone who's tried to be successful at anything in the music industry has come up against the uncaring brigade, the brigade, sorry, the group of people who literally only care about their own success, their own profits, furthering their own situation. And by definition, that usually means they have to exploit someone or something in order to do it. You've seen countless hip hop pages on Instagram and Twitter who exploit the music for their own ends. Countless labels who exploit hardworking artists to pad out their profit margins. Entire rooms of business people micromanaging art. I've literally been in those rooms. Is really gross. It's really gross the way they talk about it. P.E. said, fuck no. Chuck D. told the New York Post, I want to see a million artists out there and 500,000 labels. Our goal is to disrupt the industry. And putting out music for free as an MP3 download in 99 was going to piss everyone off. Because this was the beginning of the end for CDs already. Napster was blowing up. The RIAA actually unveiled a plan to end music piracy around this time with all the major labels signing it and agreeing to fight against distributing music on the internet. That's how fucking stupid major labels were, by the way. So they literally were signing in 99 that we're going to stop music being distributed on the internet. Five or six years later, they're like, yeah, we're going to distribute exclusively on the internet. And Public Enemy were ahead of them. It's predictable, definitely. Predictable. (laughs) But Public Enemy what? were ahead of all this. They, and they they wanted a piece? Oh, my gosh. Crazy. Yeah, but, I mean, Public Enemy should be allowed to put out their own music on... on. So, look, it's a solid album. Um, Chuck D sounds very enthused and enraged at times. I enjoyed it. Um, again, we, we settle into this kind of, like, middle career where the, the albums are great, but, like, it is kind of Chuck Honestly, D it's fighting. a miracle they, they even have the, this amount of albums. It is. <laughs> you think about the it's collective, we'll talk about it at the end, but like a whole, a massive collective and they just keep dropping projects. It's it's pretty impressive, to be honest. We get Revolution next. Yeah, I ain't got much to say about this one. Um, it kind of gives off fan album vibes. Yes, yeah, it's um, a different album, it, this one. Yes, it's a, it's a very odd format where... Um, it's a mixture of, you know, original songs, which for the, for the most part, I'm not really that into maybe like son of a bush, which is obviously reference to George W. Bush. This dropped in 2002. So this is a very, very perfect timely. time to talk about. This is a time when everyone was talking about George W. Bush in some fashion. Yeah, we were. Um, shout to Cameron. George, um, George but W. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Chat Kanye. <laughs> shout to, yeah, shout to Cameron. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a smattering of um, original songs and uh, mixed with some remixes which of which I was not into pretty much any of them. I have no idea what the Mole Men mix of By the Time I Get to Arizona was doing here. Um, or, or any of the remixes to be honest. So I, didn't really, I wasn't really into any of the remixes. Um, and also uh, a couple of interludes disguised as public service announcements. Um, one at the end where it was kind of like a phone call, um, between Big Daddy Kane, Flavor Flav, and I think Chuck D as well. Um, so that was interesting, I guess, a little bit of hip hop history there. Um, but, and also obviously live, uh, live, uh, versions of, uh, like My Easy Ways a Ton, Welcome to the Terror Dome, excuse me. Um, so yeah, 
basically just three things, <laughs> three albums in one, and none of them hit for me. <laughs> like, you know, obviously the live versions are the live versions. Like, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of live albums. Um, I, I appreciate it as a, as a memento. Um, I actually have um, uh, Nas Illmatic um, live at the Ken- Kennedy Center. Um, that's a, that's one of my favorite albums that I've got. I've never played it yet, but I, I have it and I really love the artwork. Um, done with it, done with that. So yeah, I'm not against the concept of live albums. I just find this album a little odd because it's literally just like original music, um, mi- remixes, uh, interludes and live music and none of it meshes. <laughs> it's just so... I mean, f- a, another pun intended, uh, considering there's a remix here called the Scattershot remix. But yes, it is very the album is very scattershot to me. Yeah, I think, look, if I'm going to explain this album, I have to explain it by saying that they're trying to fuck shit up. Public Enemy were definitely trying to fuck shit up. So, you know, we praise both Cannabis and Immortal Technique, um, and I think Chameleon Air too for their early use in the internet because it was not common and it isn't common in our retrospectives, to be honest. How dare you not reference Soldier Boy? Well, Soldier Boy came a little bit later. He came about a decade. Yes, later. I know, I know. It's just the fact that everyone believes that everyone just whenever whenever like the internet and hip hop like come into conversation, everyone just goes Soldier Boy, Soldier Boy, Soldier Boy. Yeah, because you guys don't remember what it was like. Five other dudes that did that like ten years before. You guys don't remember what it was like to hear you don't. Oh, don't, I do. Don't, I do. Don't you worry. Don't, don't worry. I remember. Don't, like, I, remember. I, I remember. Bang. So, Public Enemy, right? Pepperidge Farm remembers, okay? <laughs> Pepperidge Farm remembers. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't watched that show in a long time, man. <laughs> what, Family Guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why, do, why do we both reference that as a Family Guy thing? Because it's where actually we, a, that's uh, where we but it's actually it. like adverts in the US that existed like in the 70s, I think. Yeah, but we, we discovered it via Family Pepperidge Guy. Farm remembers. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, so Public Enemy saw the internet as a way of decentralizing the means of distribution and a way to break themselves and potentially all artists free from corporate capitalism. Something they'd railed against Ooh. since their debut album was something that Charlie and I would love to get rid of. And, you know, something they couldn't coexist with long term, inevitably. They might have made it to 98 alongside Def Jam, but I think it was clear there had to be a fracture. So in 98, they began establishing themselves online. They had four websites. They had rapstation.com, which was news. Bringthenoise.com was to promote under, underground rap. Publicenemy.com was a way to connect with fans via a message board, and slamjams.com was how they released their 99 album. So they were the first hip-hop act of that magnitude to see the value in reaching out to their fans via the internet. There's always a sense from their music and interviews. They truly believe major labels were not necessary in connecting artists to their fans. And Chuck D has said in interviews, as I said, he believes if there's a million rappers, there should be 500,000 record labels. That's the level of connection there he yep. wants to have with the people who are promoting his music. So they did something. I love that quote. It's a cool quote. It's a very cool quote. quote. So they did something very cool on this album. They posted up the acapellas to by the time I get to Arizona, shut them down, B-side wins again, and their breakout track, Public Enemy Number 1, and they asked their fans to remix it, and they promised to place the best tracks on the album. And they did it. Right. They didn't just okay. shove them at the end of the album either. <laughs> they they, yeah, integ- yeah, yeah. they integrated those songs into the track list, which is not something I have ever heard. I I never heard yeah, a group I, do yeah, that. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah. yeah never heard a group do so. that. That's, that's wild. So 
Pitchfork's review is well written and identifies the problem with the album. All the cuts of remixes in interviews and live performances give the album pretty much a compilation feel, but I don't personally see that as the most negative thing. I think the takeaway from this episode might be there's no more revolutionary mainstream hip-hop act than Public Enemy. They literally did whatever the fuck they wanted, whenever the fuck they wanted to do it, and there was always a message behind their decisions. This record is probably one of the earliest takedowns of the internet's legacy. You know, the attention span required to sit with an album as dense as it takes a nation of millions to hold us back is absent in 2024 from the youth. And it was starting to head in that direction already in the early 2000s, and PE recognized this. And, you know, that might sound like a stretch, but in later albums, Chuck D around them actually says, we were actively trying to reduce the amount of, like, the length of our albums because we felt like they were too long. He was like, I feel like 11 songs is easily enough to get your point across. He said, I feel like people were getting bored with our albums because they would, you know, it was too much. The, the message was too dense. It was too intense. So, you know, they, they kind of try to do that here with a little bit of an internet mixed disc rather than a full body of new music, which I found interesting. I think I would have been pretty pissed if I'd been waiting for a new album from my favorite group and I got something like, I think I would have been like, this could have been the second disc, <laughs> you know, the deluxe edition. But no. So anyway, and then we get New World Order, which is the last album we're going to talk about today. Shout out to Coke Records, by the way, um, that we keep refer that keeps getting referenced and uh, historically has been basically consumed whole several times over. Uh, but we keep seeing them. So shout out to Coke Records. <laughs> but yeah, New World Order, uh, which is probably my favourite out of the wordplay uh, world play names. Um, just I like the I like the name I like the spelling of whirl. Just it's a nice whirl. It's a nice nice word. Um, yeah, it's okay. Um, I was very fascinated um, starting the album and then seeing. Uh, it, I, I was kind of chuckling in my head like, as you were as you were saying. You know, oh, eleven albums, uh, eleven songs. Uh, you know, p- fine to get your word across. Um, and, you know, it could be shorter, da-da-da-da-da, proceeds to give me a 15-track album, uh, with uh, the last track being nearly 12 minutes long, um, which is outstanding, very jazz record of of them. Um, I actually like the track, <laughs> Superman's Black in the Building, I actually really enjoy it. Um, it just ha- It's just basically a, a regular song, but with just a really, really long outro. Um, but you know, it keeps uh, it keeps it fresh as it goes. I, I think it's a relatively interesting track from a production perspective. I think it's very fascinating. Um, but yeah, um, I love Revolution with uh, featuring a guy called Society. I've never spun him before or seen him anywhere, but that was a really good fucking verse. And uh, that was uh, as first verses go of uh, to intro yourself. That was really good. Um, but yeah, bring that beat back is another song. That I was just that I've heard before. I don't know fucking where, but I fucking love it, and I wish I remembered where it's from. Um, again, most likely from a video game. I don't know what video game, but I'm assuming it's from a video game. But I really love that track, and it's a banger. Um, Moby on "Make Love Fuck War," which is word is um, I don't know how, what's that. What's the term for that kind of wording? Anagra- not anagrams, is it? It's uh, kind of like um condensing condensed words i don't know how to work uh, oh yeah i don't know um, the correct term yeah i don't know the correct term for there it. is a um, term i forget what it is yeah acronym yeah, there isn't there is it an acronym correct. acronym maybe yeah no nah. well, yeah. acronym is no acronym is like 
if oh, I, I if I took if I took yeah. Make Love Fuck War and made it into another thing, that's yeah. that's an acronym. No, that's but yes, that's um, a synonym. Oh, that's oh, I'm confused uh, now. I'm getting mad yeah. confused. Don't worry about. I'm it. I'm not yet. smart enough you, to have you, this conversation. If, if you guys see it, let us know what it is, because I'm sure stop, if, once you see it, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway. <clears throat> Um, yeah, uh, weird producer list, um, several of them I've never heard of, and randomly Professor Griff, uh, in, involved, uh, so, yeah, he's still here, uh, you know, just in, uh, out and about, um, the reviews make sense, I guess, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit, um, ruthless, I guess, at this point, it's kind of kicking someone while they're down, to be honest, um, I don't think it's the, their worst album ever in the way this uh, way this average is going out. Three, I'm seeing three out of tens. I'm seeing two out of fives and five point nine from Pitchfork and stuff like that, and two and a half from Rolling Stone. So, you know, it, it's kind of a kick while you're down kind of thing. But uh, you know, like you said, bro, and this is the last album doing this this episode, so I feel like um, I, w- I wanted to respond to that kind of. Uh, um, mentioning of uh how revolutionary they are i think chuck d's still within that mindset you know he started the uh the bring the noise uh uh social he doesn't call it social media he calls it something else but uh, of course because of course he does right you know i have an affinity for chuck d um i have an affinity for chuck d because um my my best mate uh, always tells me that i love to be different you like being different, don't you? You don't just, you don't like doing the same thing, do you? You've got to be different. you just got to be different with everything, don't you? And sometimes I do just to piss him off, but some, but most of the time I generally just do stuff differently because I feel like it's either better or I just like doing it differently. But I feel like Chuck D really approaches life in a very interesting way. And um, the fact that he uses what he has um, vocally, you know, artistically... Um, to put put across what he feels is the right way of life um, is so commendable. Um, and, you know, you mentioned how old they were in their 30s, in the mid-90s, and how, you know, quite, quite out of touch they were, right? And like I said, you know, they had the, they've, had, they've had their bad takes over the decades, uh, Chuddy especially, right? But you also mentioned that you, they were on the fucking forefront of what is basically now... <laughs> Of what basically is um, uh, is and what should be the music industry now, that 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 mention of um of uh, you know millions of artists and th- uh, tens of thousands of record labels, is basically what's going to happen at some point. It's just a matter of you know taking the power out of UMG and Sony's hands. Sony, by the way, to get in a very early light note, is paying a billion fucking dollars uh, above a billion dollars for Michael Jackson's catalog. Crazy, um, but yeah, is 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 he's to say he's out of touch, but also be ahead of the game in some ways. It's such a fascinating legacy, and I know I'm I'm saying when I say legacy, I always feel like we should end it right there and then as soon as we say that but and we've got a whole nother episode to get to but um yeah man he's it's such a it's such a fascinating um arc even though you know in terms of obviously popularity in terms of um uh, mainstream appeal um it was obviously pretty much gone at this point um but again considering all of the ills that the group went through um personally and as a group and as a collective the fact that they still drop and we still have for the next episode 
um, let me count live, uh, one, two, three, four, five, uh, six, um, and I feel, I feel like we're going to do the enemy radio one as well, so seven, um, and that's not even talking about Rebirth of a Nation with Paris, um, we're doing seven albums next week, and they still fucking go, man. They're still gonna go. They're still gonna keep dropping. Now, I think they're doing it relatively independently these days. Um, but then again, I think uh, Grid when uh, Grid goes down was on Def Jam, if I remember correctly. So yeah, that was on Def Jam, their most latest album. So you know, they go back to they go back to things. You know, they they do they do stuff for old times' sake, I guess, um, in some ways. But um, yeah, man, they do they do. They, they do what they they keep to them they keep to their word. Um, they keep you know, to their albeit, fucking uh, words, don't they? They keep to their word. Uh, what else to say on that front? They keep to their word, and you know they 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 keep finding ways to be different. And as someone that likes to be different, they do it fucking well. So respect. Yeah, I mean, I I wrote here that um I can't think of a mainstream act, hip hop or otherwise, who had the commercial audience in the palm of their hand and decided to crumble that audience rather than caress it not common i mean lupe's kind of done it a little bit later in his career but the way that public yeah, enemy sure. did it i mean they they were above lupe in terms of commercial success in terms of like the late 80s like they were fucking at the pinnacle so it's incredible man it's really interesting um you know the pitchfork review as charlie said was kind of lamenting their lack of commercial success and reflecting on why that might be but public enemy i don't understand like we're having this conversation I don't think Chuck D has ever had that conversation with anyone. I don't think he's been in a room with anyone and been like, oh, I'm a bit worried about our commercial success. Should really uh, just look into that. I don't think they give a fuck about that. Um, and New World Order is, you know, this is them settling into their mid-career. Um, for a political group to still be putting out vital music in the mid-2000s, 20 years into their career, and music that's relevant and instructional, it's not out of touch at all, that's very rare. Um, you know, I saw a narrative on Twitter last week about Tribe's final album, about how amazing it was, how they came back after so many years and dropped something still vital and relevant. You you know, you only have to watch that video of Buster Rhymes criticizing mask wearers to know how difficult it actually is for older artists to remain relevant to more than just a few weirdos on Instagram. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's it's really not easy. And you think about Chuck D, for example, who is one of the most outspoken people in history for him to continue like he's got to you've got to be very intelligent if you're going to be that outspoken because you're going to say wild shit and if you say the wrong wild shit you could end up completely gone like no one's going to support you after that so to have a career like you know we talk about other artists who are at the pinnacle and stay at the pinnacle for example someone if you look at someone like jay-z right what has jay-z said outside of his records over the last 20 years not much, not really. Doesn't do many interviews, and when he does, they're pretty generic. They're pretty, they're pretty tame. Same with Beyonce. Same with Taylor Swift. They do it because they know if they say a lot of things, they're most likely going to fuck something up. They're going to piss off some version or some person or some part of their fan base. So they stay quiet so that they can amass the most amount of fans as possible. And just you know, but Public Enemy Chuck D. Do you know how many fucking interviews this man does? He does like seven for every album, and they've got like 50 albums. All he does is interviews. Chuck D talks constantly, and he never fucks up because he's intelligent and he believes what he says. And I think that's why I love Public Enemy so much. They have stayed so consistent to their sound and their message and their mission throughout their career. You know, for Pitchfork to be criticizing them or saying, 
lamenting their lack of commercial success. No, no interviewer or critic or, or critic should ever be concerned with their commercial success in the mid two thousands. It's not what Public Enemy is about. Public Enemy would laugh at you if you said to them, "You guys aren't as commercially successful." They'd be like, "They're still reviewing them." I know that's the thing, right? <laughs> they really triggered them, bro. They really triggered like, they're them. Still go- they're still doing it. They really triggered the it. reviewers. Like, man. It's so hilarious. All of this lamenting about mainstream success, you're still fucking talking about them. Yeah. So clearly they got your attention. Yeah, they're still relevant. It's hilarious enough. to me, bro. Yeah. Like, it's different in this landscape where music journalism's basically on its fucking dying breath at this point, oh, right? Where in a bad um, way, bro. In a terrible way. <laughs> like we're fucked. Yeah, just publications dying left and right at this point, right? But um, you know, it's so funny that all of these all of these places, you know, uh, have these reviewers coming through to basically give a every album is just like an, uh, a fucking eulogy for like Public Enemy. Yeah, that's and <laughs> obviously they couldn't predict the future <laughs> at this point. point. <laughs> but to be fair, they'll, they'll, they'll if we if we get to the reviews of um, you know Grid goes down or whatever, they'll be like, oh, great swan song for Public Enemy. They're gonna drop in twenty years. They'll keep dropping. They're probably gonna they're gonna drop until Chuck drops. Let's be real, uh, <laughs> it's gonna happen until Chuck loses his voice or dies. Yeah. The Public Enemy's still gonna drop. Let's just be real. At yeah. some point, maybe one a decade. Who even knows at this point? Pu- but Public it's gonna Enemy. fucking happen, bro. Public Enemy. It's gonna happen. They're the, it's, they're the pinnacle. They can't, right? they can't die, bro. They can't die. But they're the pinnacle of just like they are the 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 definition of longevity in hip hop. Like they continue Silly. to make it makes no, vital. It's, it's some, it's, relevant music and like good music good music yeah i can't comprehend it there are no bad albums in their back catalog even revolution i was like oh yeah this is kind of cool because i can see where they're going it's not an album i'm going to go back to with context with context i rate it exactly right as a listen i don't yeah context i rate it i love public enemy so much i really do i really (laughs) fucking love public enemy (laughs) this is a great fucking Uh, little three-part you know you know what we should do um i'm gonna put this on wax but i want to try i want to try and get my guy martin to come through on the pod as well uh when you when you come here because he shout to martin ask him um he's a visual artist um has been so for years and um, actually had to, has worked with Chuck D on several things over the years and has a really close relationship with him. Um, was prob- He was probably at that London show that they recorded for fucking uh, Nation of Millions. So um, he's, da- he's, he's day one on Public Enemy and has been blessed to work with Chuck D over the years. So I'm going I'm to get Martin on the blower at some point in the week and I'm going to see if we can... Uh, uh, have a chat with him as well as a as kind of like a post mortem uh, for this for these three episodes. Um, I'm not going to force him to listen to all three hours, but <laughs> but you know he he kn- he knows enough uh, to have his own thoughts on it. It'll be very interesting to get his thoughts on all of this, and especially as um, you know, uh, obviously you with all the research that you've done so far, and uh, with everything I've uh, just in terms of listening to music for the first time is just like very fascinating to me, and all this context really really makes sense on just why these guys are so fucking iconic um speaking of iconic um we forgot to say um last episode i mean we did we we were recorded on the day of the grammys so you know we could have said it but we uh, plum forgot um our our yearly um tradition of throwing the middle finger up and uh, saying fuck the grammys 
STG. And, uh, Fuck the Grammys. STG. And um, as always, always, I want to mention at least one thing that happened during the Grammys. I want to mention two things. One that is generally positive and one that's not. The generally positive thing is that um, fucking Tracy Chapman, man. Like, I haven't listened to her work. Um, I, I will at some point in life. I just don't really have the emotional capacity to do that kind of thing these days. you got to be careful um, with Tracy but, Chapman, bro. <laughs> yeah. you got to be in I've the heard, right I've headspace heard. for that shit. I've heard stories. You're yes. going to be in I've real trouble stories. if you're not. <laughs> yeah. I've heard stories, um, but yeah, um, I, I don't think anybody would um, uh, uh, bat me down if when I say that Fast Car is probably one of the top ten objectively greatest written songs in history. music history. Easily, um, I just the lyrics on there are just so fucking real, stunning. Like I've um, got goosebumps just thinking about. But if she weren't wearing an earpiece, did you know that? Did you realize that? When I don't know if you've seen the clip of her performing, but she wasn't wearing. Like nothing. That was she just did that pro, like raw. That was crazy. Anyway, so appreciate that. Um, but something I didn't notice until I don't know if this was like the first year of this happening um, or, or whatever. But how how much money did Dr. Drake give to the Recording Academy to have not just a, not just an award named after him? But also Global Impact Award. Oh, Dr. Dre, Global who, Impact. Like, who are we gonna give it to? Give me, give me ten minutes. I'll think of at least ten names. Like, I've, <laughs> I feel like, you know, is this is this odd to um, pick Dr. Dre? I know, like as a global impact. As someone who lives award. in Australia, as someone who if lives it was globally, like, if it was like Dr. Dre technical technical achievement award, something of that nature, you know what I mean? There's bit of na- there's bit of there's bit of superlatives to give to put to put Dr. Dre. Uh, I don't know, man. Insert space here. Global impact. Ah uh, no, you gotta think about everything Dre's done though. Like NWA, NWA, one of the first international hip hop acts. California who Love, also, bro. Who also got a lifetime achievement award in this year's Grammy. So but don't yet, let that wash over you. You've got Cal- uh, don't let that fly over your head. By the way, so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, just saying I'm how much dead, was I'm it? How much was it. the check? I'm not super <laughs> against it to be honest. I'm not. I'm not super against okay. it. You got uh, Eminem. He brought Eminem into the game. He brought Fifty Cent into the game. Like, I'm, sure. like, look, I don't, I'm not. A, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not disagreeing with you. But I don't. Public think Enemy is a good name. There I, you go. <laughs> I don't think he's the worst person. I think there are other people that could have been probably not just hip hop, but like you know. Yeah. Yeah, this is even just about hip hop, by the way. Like global impact, you know, that's not just hip hop. Even though, you know, I would say personally, as someone that has, you know, regularly um, done several words on glazing up what hip hop is and saying it's the most, you know, influential music genre and influential fucking entity in the past 50 years. So, you know, me saying that, I can't not say that having a hip hop artist as the global impact award is wrong. I'm just saying that there's better names, um, including the likes of Public Enemy. So, and uh, I'm just saying how much was the check? I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's the worst pick. 
I just want to know how much was the check that you gave. That's all I'm saying. Because, you know, he's done that before. He has a school in USC with his name on it. And he put a fuck ton of money in that, along with Jimmy Iovine. So he's not against doing that. He's not against throwing money at at shit just to put his name on things. So I'm just saying, just asking, just, you know, how much. I was just inquiring. Just a simple inquiry. I'm just, just inquiring. inquiring. I just, just asking the question. There's no bad questions. Just, I just, I'm just asking the question as, as, asking. as a fledgling music journalist. <laughs> anyway, well, that was the other thing. Like, I, I, I got a message from my friend during the week, and we were talking about um, Warner and Universal laying off employees, and you know, obviously Pitchfork. And I said yeah, to him, right? yeah. I said to him, bro, who's going to be the outlets now? Who are the journalists? And he was like, you guys. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> so like. The hip hop numbers and the SKs it, and the it says Joeys, it all, right? It says it all. And the yeah, Joeys just, and yeah. the you it know, says, it says it all. It like, says it all. Yeah. Ben, Ben, who Ben, who regularly does videos on asking Twitter and Instagram who are the this and this and this, and they give the worst answers fucking possible. Yeah, um, they yeah, really ben, do. Congratulations, you are the pinnacle of hip hop journalism. <laughs> <laughs> who, who's the best rapper without a classic? Who's carried by their beats? <laughs> They're just BuzzFeed articles, bro. They're just... <laughs> oh, gosh. But the other... BuzzFeed Ben. See, the thing that... The thing that, the thing that then makes me a little bit sad as to why that's a massive problem, right, is because, obviously, if you're writing for a publication, Charlie and I have both written for publications, you're trying to entertain. Why? Uh, I've written for my own publications. I ain't written for other people's. But I thought yes, you were, used to work in, like, basketball or some shit. Oh, sure. That was but that's like still 16. writing, bro. That's still writing. Uh, 16, for I was writing 300 word articles still of counting. news aggregation. See, I don't still, count that as. It's you know, still journalism. But yes, carry on. But yes, see, the officially, thing... officially, I've done it. Yes, what? I've written on publications. Right. When, when you're writing for a publication, there is a level that you have to be at. Okay, you have to be. You can't. It can't be just dumb clickbait. Yes, you need to entertain and you need to be, you know, entertaining and pull people into your page and keep them there. But it can't just be. Who has the most, I don't know, fucking Spotify monthly listeners of the XXL freshman from 2016? That's not journalism, guys. It really isn't. It's just clickbait meme shit. So this is the thing. This is why it's sad because, you know, on Twitter, for example, we're getting paid to tweet. I'm not personally being paid to tweet by Twitter because I haven't set it up. I don't I haven't done the whole monetization thing. But most of the people on there are getting paid by Twitter. So they're getting paid to just say wild, dumb shit. The more wild and stupid the shit you say, the more likes and retweets you get, the more money you make. So if that's going to be our level of journalism, and I'm using all that to like segue into the Kanye thing, right? So I have not spun the album and I have no intention of spinning it. I'm not going to promote it. I'm I'm not going to run any numbers on it. I don't care. I don't care. Don't care. But the problem that you're going to get if you're trying to get any kind of music journalism or discourse or anything about this album, you're not going to get anything of value because you're just going to get a bunch of clickbait, hype beast dipshits who are like, if I say this album is good, I'm going to get 20,000 likes from dumbass Kanye fans. Doesn't matter if I like the album or not. Doesn't matter if I even listen to it or not. I could literally tweet out in the next 10 minutes, I think this Kanye album is his best album since Yeezus. I'll never listen to it. I'll get 20,000 likes. People will be like, that's amazing. I'll get 5 million views. I don't know how much money that would translate to, but I assume it would be a decent chunk from Twitter if I were to do that. I'm not going to do it personally, but that you, you can see where the problem is if you're trying to rely on these hip-hop Twitter accounts like Rap TV as your fucking news aggregator or your place to find discourse about hip-hop and music. Terrible. 
absolutely terrible. So it is bad that we're losing music journalism. If you think it isn't, I promise you it fucking is because this is, I'm not going to say they're the gatekeepers, but they're the ones who kind of set the rules. They remind you what's rational and what's calm. So like, you know, if an album comes out and it's come out from Playboy Cardi, I can't criticize it because if I criticize a Playboy Cardi album, everyone's going to think I'm a dipshit. That's why you need fucking dumbass journalists like Ethan P to come out and say, no, <laughs> this album actually sucks, guys. But he can say that because Ethan, Ethan P, P, Ethan P's not famous. No one's going to abuse him. He doesn't have a fucking face on social media that he can get dragged. <laughs> Ethan P can just say, oh, this album sucks uh. and just slide back off into the shadows. That's why we need the Ethan P's of the world, okay? That's why... It's difficult being honest when you have a face. It is difficult, okay? It's difficult getting up here and saying this shit, knowing that everyone sees you and looks at you. So we do need music journalists. End of TED Talk. Pre- <laughs> do you not appreciate as we as we uh, are a couple of months away from, what is it, four years now? Five years? Five years. It'll be in 20. Yeah, yeah. No, five years. Is that we have some deep cuts. Yeah, we do. Ethan P is so specific at this point. <laughs> That's a ten minute rant from twenty nineteen so that Charlie funny. did randomly. It's, like it's Oh my gosh, it's so good. We got it's deep so cuts, good. bro. I, I, I remember it so vividly. It was but it's wild. so funny of how it came uh, sh- go listen to the Roots Maneuver episode. I'm just gonna do That's you a lot of solid. It's from the Roots Maneuver episode. Go give it a spin. It's a great It's app. a very good episode. Shout to Reese Maneuver. Um, but yeah, it's uh, <laughs> the fact that we just have so many like just um, just deep cut jokes that we bring out now and again is just I absolutely fucking amazing. I fucking to me. love it, man. I appreciate that a lot. So, anyway, if you guys get it, you get it. It's a real if you know, you know thing, and I'm, I like that. I, I love inside jokes. Same. Anyway, with that said, we've reached about 90 minutes ish, so let's cap it off. Ladies and gentlemen, I need to eat. Fucking I'm hungry. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, from the 5 EPN, this has been Digging Digits. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm trying to hear the fifth element. Main card of hip-hop numbers. Public Enemy number three coming <laughs> next week. And then after that, it is the live from oh. London in person DITD episodes. What will they be about? Well, I've just kind of maybe... Uh, given way one since i've stated my intent to do so um but this we've got we've got a couple of episodes in in the in the chamber LDN. um to do and um yeah I, I think it'll be relatively interesting i mean let's be real one of them will just probably be like a neighbors or something but the other one's different it's special okay and i won't let that one out so uh we'll keep that under wraps but yes but yeah we'll be uh we'll be linking up in person after the public enemy <clears throat> and um, hitting up a couple of shows and uh, you know getting some of that herb but apart from that it's all good but until then hope you have a good week we shall always try to do the same until next time take it easy alright peace Digging in Digits is produced by me and Ben Carter. Show is edited by me. Music for the show is piece of video games by bonus points. Thanks to Chill Hot Music for the ability to use. Socials with Filament, Hip Hop by Lovers, Bonus Points, and Chill Music will be in the full show notes as well as the names of projects reviewed. Wherever you're listening, it's been a 5 EPM production. Thanks for spending time with us, and we shall see you next time on Digging in Digits.